Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Okay, we are in John chapter 18. We're preaching through John. Um, We're coming out of chapter 17, which was one of the most magnificent prayers ever prayed. Um, We're going into John 18. I love this passage. Um, Here's what we're going to try to do today as we look at this. We're going to look at John 18. We're going to go 1 through um, 27, if we can. And we're going to look at uh, really four people. We're going to look at um, a guy named Judas. Uh, We're going to look at a guy named Annas. We're going to look at a guy named Peter. And then we're going to look at Jesus. Um, and, and as we look at Jesus in this particular passage, what we're going to attempt to do is, um, so Jesus is, is both fully God and fully man, okay? Got that? Um, and he is part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, this, this three-part God. And as he's on earth in human skin, he put on like an earth suit, he walked around, he's fully God and fully man. But we're going to attempt to look at him in this moment as separating him sort of from God for just a minute and how he relates to God. And we're going to see if we can even um, see who Jesus is as he relates to Yahweh God. And so the, really the crux, I think, of today is uh, how did Judas relate to God? How did Annas relate to God? How does Peter relate to God? And then how does Jesus relate to God? And each of them faced what I would sort of suggest is this massive um, choice or fork in the trail of their own life, okay? So the idea is that as we listen to this, that you would find yourself, um, James actually calls the scripture like a mirror, and you gaze into it, and in doing so, you see both who God is, and then guess what? You see yourself. And sometimes you're like, yes, things are going great. The Lord's working in and through me. And other times you're like, yes, he's convicting me that I need to change. Right? Either way is good. So that's, that's sort of the idea um, of this. So we're going to look at Annas and Peter and Judas um, and Jesus. Let's just start. John 18, verse 1. When, they had, when he had finished praying, who's the he? Jesus, that's right. And let's say this as we open the scripture. Anytime I open the scripture, I'm going to usually say something like, Lord Jesus, speak to me. Can you say that with me? Lord Jesus, speak to me. Lord Jesus, show me. Lord Jesus, fill me. Lord Jesus, heal me. And that's it. But every time I open the scripture, I'm going to say, Lord, would you speak to me? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're on the outside of this journey, I would invite you to do the same thing. God, if you're real, speak to me and then leave it. He's God and you're not. Let him speak. He will. All right. When he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden. This is called Gethsemane. And he and his disciples went into it. 
without jumping too far here, um, there's, a, there's a couple things I want to point out. Jesus probably had some sort of um, wealthy friend that gave him a key to this locked garden called Gethsemane. And they, they probably gave him a key, and he and his disciples now went to it. So they've been in the upper room. They've been on the Mount of Olives. They've come out of the upper room. You could look back at some of the other sermons if you want to hear um, all of that text. But they've come down, and they cross the Kidron Valley, and they go into this place called Gethsemane. Um, now, uh, something that I think is fascinating, and I couldn't get out of my head as I was like reading this whole text, is the Kidron Valley, through it, is this little um, brook, uh, brook like a stream, um, called the stream or the brook of Kidron. And at the time of Passover, um, if, you're, if you're familiar with the scripture, at the time of Passover, they would um, kill hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of sheep. Okay, and they would take the blood of the sheep and they would pour the blood on the altar. And as they would do that, there was a channel next to the altar that would actually drain out the side of the temple and the Kidron brook would actually flow red with the blood of the lambs. Now, you have Jesus, who is the Lamb. We've looked at some of that in Isaiah from Genesis to Revelation. He is known as the Lamb of God. And the reason we don't sacrifice animals today is because Jesus took his place as the Lamb, as the ultimate sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Okay, And I can't imagine, but as Jesus is coming sort of down the Mount of Olives, he's going across this Kidron Brook, I can just imagine Jesus um, stepping over and or through this little brook. And it probably was not yet flowing red with blood because Passover would have been a day or so away. And yet he would have known as a boy he would have seen. And as he steps over this stream that would, would flow uh, blood or flow red, excuse me, with blood, I can't imagine that he wasn't mindful that he was stepping over and becoming the very Lamb of God to take away our sins. And then if you take it even a step further, I can't imagine that, that he wasn't mindful. Remember when he was transfigured, we've talked about as we, as we went through Exodus a few months ago, when he was transfigured and Moses, uh, transfigured just means he was revealed or, or shown to be who he was. Moses stepped out of eternity past and they dialogued because Moses led the people out of slavery to a guy named, boy, I got to do a better job preaching, don't I? So Moses led the people out of slavery to a guy named Pharaoh, right? That's right. And then Jesus is leading through his own blood, stepping over this little Kidron brook, and he is leading people um, to freedom from slavery to uh, sin, okay? So Jesus is really the new Moses, fulfilling the entirety of the Old Testament, becoming the very Lamb of God. And let me, let me also open something up here that is... Um, I don't know, I think it's profound if you can think about it. They're going into this garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane um, in, in Hebrew means um, place of the crushing. Okay? And the reason it means that is because this is called the Mount of Olives. Now, what do you think they grew on the Mount of Olives? Mangoes. So it's called Gethsemane because on this entire mountain they grow olives, they harvest the olives, and then they set them between these massive um, like stone millstones. And the millstones would have these pegs in them, and either a donkey or a group of humans uh, would actually turn the millstones, and they would pulverize and crush the olives, and out would come olive oil. 
So what even symbolically God is beginning to reveal here in this text is, you, my son Jesus, you the one with whom I love and am well pleased, you the one are going to take and cross this Kidron brook that's going to flow red with blood. You are going to become the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world, past, present, and future, for all time. And you are going to be crushed in the place of crushing on the Garden of Gethsemane. And what Jesus actually settled in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you read the other um, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that he settled whose will would be done. Okay, so that's where he prayed the famous prayer. Not my will, but... But he also, before he prayed that prayer, he said, hey, God, I don't want to do this. Would you take this cup from me? And yet, not my will, but your will be done. Okay? So I want to propose to you, this isn't formulaic, it's more like a pattern, but I want to propose to you that Jesus passed through the place of Gethsemane where he settled, not my will, but your will. Come on, say that with me. Not my will, but your will. He passed from Gethsemane, and then he's going to go to a place called Golgotha or Calvary. Those can be used interchangeable. It was a hill outside the old city walls in Jerusalem. And there he was crucified, and he surrendered his life and gave it all. He died. And only then was he placed in the ground, and three days later he broke the back of hell and death and sin and sickness and all the things, and he was resurrected to life in Christ. Now the challenging thing for most of us as believers is we want to go right to the garden tomb and experience the resurrection life of Jesus. You can't get to the resurrection power of this Jesus in your life without passing through the place of the crushing where you settle my will or your will, number one, and without crossing over Calvary where you surrender it all and lay down your life so that you can be resurrected to life in Jesus. So when pastors get up and preach a one-part message, I wanna go, hold on! I'm gonna give you the good news in the end of it and not tell you the whole shebang. You follow me? You can't experience the resurrection power of Jesus without passing through Gethsemane and determining it is his will and way, not your will and way. And you cannot experience the resurrection life of Jesus in and through you without taking up your cross at Golgotha, laying down your life with Jesus. Only then can you experience the resurrection power of Jesus in and through your life. Whew. Sorry. That's the truth. And I am committed to bring you the truth. Okay. Let's keep going. They've crossed over this brook in the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas. Now, Judas is one of the 12 disciples who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So now it's towards the middle of the night. Okay, it's dark Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers. Okay, so, so he's guiding a detachment of soldiers. This is, um, I'm going to try to do this quickly, but this detachment in, in Greek, without digging too deep into it, um, it's, a, it, it's spiria in Greek. It means a cohort of soldiers. And the Greek word for a Roman cohort of soldiers meant 600 men. There was a second meaning of this Greek word spiria, and it meant 1,000 men, 240 cavalry, and 760 infantry. It meant like a whole army. 
There is a third word that they used that, that was used by the, uh, the Greeks and the Romans um, for, for this spuria, and it was 200 soldiers. Okay, so when you're doing Bible translation, you like look at this and you're like, what is a detachment of soldiers? So you look it up. What's it mean in Greek? What's the context? How did they use it? So I get all that. And then I go, okay, the, the, the road on the Mount of Olives is a narrow road. I am guessing we're probably thinking about 200 men. That's the way I'd take it, okay? So I'm guessing that 200 Roman soldiers along with some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So let's just take a guess. Let's call it 230, fair, 250. So, I mean, there's a crew, you know, like I was, um, our, our kids uh, have watched, um, gosh, what is that, Beauty and the Beast. You ever seen Beauty and the Beast? You know, where Gaston, like, gets all the townspeople, and there's, like, this huge, like, kill the beast, you know, and they're all, like, in this big rampage, and they go charging out. And that's about what this thing would have been like, okay? You've got 250, let's just say, Judas is at the helm. Um, they're carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. I mean, because Jesus has been this, like, powerful revolutionary that's, like, starting fights everywhere he goes, right? I, I actually look at this, and I'm like, I, I was being sarcastic there, if you didn't catch that. Um, how little Judas actually even knew Jesus. To take 250 people to go get this gentle, kind, gracious, yet all-powerful God who is in the garden. He takes 250 people, but you definitely know uh, he is afraid. All right, so let's, let's pause there at verse 4 and let's talk Judas just for a second. Now, when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples in earlier passages of this and the other Gospels um, to minister, do you think Judas went? Absolutely. So did Judas preach Jesus? Yes. Okay, let's keep going. The disciples went out, and frequently, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they would go and they'd preach in a village or they'd preach in a town. They'd lay hands on the sick. And what would often happen? The sick would be healed. Now, do you think Judas participated in praying for and seeing sick people healed? Yes. Yes. This is uncomfortable in our modern America, but it's part of the scriptures. But uh, oftentimes Jesus drove out demonic, and demons are just fallen angels. So there's an angelic army, there's demonic armies, and Jesus would drive them out. Do you think Judas drove out demons in the name of Jesus? Yes. Okay, so hang on a second. We have Judas, and I almost want to unvillainize Judas for a moment, and then I'm going to flip it on you. Did Judas preach Jesus? Yes. Did Judas heal in the name of Jesus? Yes. Did Judas um, perhaps drive out demons in the name of Jesus? Yes. Did Judas minister throughout the country and all over Palestine in the name of Jesus? Yeah. Was Judas well-respected and well-loved by people? Up till the very end. And here's what I want to step us into for just a second. What was it in Judas where he came face-to-face -face with this decision? It's either going to be my will or it's going to be the will of Jesus. It's going to be my way, or it's going to be the way of Jesus. It's going to be, I'm going to choose and build my kingdom, or I'm going to choose and build the kingdom of 
Jesus. And I would actually propose to you today that he has come to this point in this last couple of chapters where he came face to face with this decision where he had to go, am I going to build my kingdom, the kingdom of Judas, or am I going to build the kingdom of Jesus? Am I going to engage into the kingdom of Jesus? And this is simply Michael. This is not, I can't quote any great theologian. I can't tell you and back it up through other scripture. But my theory on Judas is he was one of the smartest of the disciples. And I think he started seeing before the other guys that this thing wasn't going to play like he wanted it to play. In other words, they are all operating under this assumption that Jesus is going to come and he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to overthrow Herod. He's going to set up and become this warlord. And when he does, what's he going to do with the 12 dudes closest to him? They're going to be, you know, leaders of leaders and wealthy and whatever. So I think Judas begins to, like, smell or see the writing on the wall. And he begins to see, I've given three years of my life. I left my career. I left my family. I've traveled around the countryside with you and camped in tents and, like, been hungry. And, like, I have given everything I have got to follow you. And you're going to bring me to the end. And you're going to drop me on my tailbone and leave me because your kingdom is some unseen reality. And it has nothing to do with overthrowing Rome or Herod. And he said, no, thank you. And not only that, but I've given three years of my life and I'm going to take what I've lost financially out of your very hide, Jesus. So I'm going to trade you. I'm going to recover what I've lost in following you these last three years. And I think there was this decisive decision where Judas went, kingdom of God, my kingdom. And he went, I choose my way. I choose my will. I choose my kingdom, and I'm going to lead a band of 250 people with torches, weapons, and lanterns, and I'm going to come into this precious garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is communing with this loving, gracious, kind, heavenly Father, praying some of the prayers that we can read in the other Gospels. And Judas comes in and betrays this Jesus, his Jesus, my Jesus, with a kiss. In the end, Judas's own greed to build his kingdom, not the kingdom of God, took precedent. Selah. We all read about Judas, and if you're like me, you go, I have nothing, there's nothing in my life like him. But when you simplify Judas's decision down to my will or your will, I think we all can resonate with the wrestling that is going on inside of Judas. He wasn't always a villain. He preached Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was well-respected by people. Now, pause there just a second. In the last five years, we have all been shocked. I've been shocked and grieved by the number of pastors that have fallen, the number of Christian leaders that have fallen, the number of things that have come out. I'm like, oh my goodness. Is it any different with Judas? Was Judas a minister of the gospel of Jesus? Yes. Did he fall? Yes. Do you think it's going to be different today? Let's say it real clearly. You can build your kingdom or you can participate with the Lord Jesus in building his kingdom. But you can't do both. Let's keep going. 
Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him. It, isn't it beautiful? Because you get these moments with the writer where you get this thing where you're, you're uh, able to see um, Jesus' humanity, which we're going to see in just a minute, but you're also able to see that Jesus' sovereignty and Jesus being the Godhead. So Jesus, right here, they, they, they give a little drop of Jesus who, as God. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went and asked them, who is it you want? Okay, now just think here a second. Uh, Jesus is in a garden. It's late in the, at night. It's dark. Um, soldiers are coming, 250 people. Everyone's got weapons. Everyone's got torches. Do you think they're calm? I, I don't think so. I think they're rowdy and angry. They're a rabble-rouse. They're going to take this guy down. And Jesus, uh, because he's like scared and whatever, he hides in the back and he sends his disciples out, right? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him. Like, get into even the courage of Jesus right here. This is the 33-year-old carpenter, the 33-year-old stonemason that was raised, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. He, they have come, and they, he knows they're going to kill him in accordance with the, actually the will of God. And he marches right up, and he asks them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. Did he hide? Did he shirk back? Did he run? Did he lie? Well, it was just a little white lie because I just didn't want to. You hear me? Stood right up. I am he. Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. I want to propose something here. There's a number of passages. Romans 14 is one. There's passages in Isaiah. There's passages in Revelation. I don't need to go through them all. But that says um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So I want you to picture this 33-year-old carpenter, I picture Jesus as, as you know, a well-built man because he worked with stones and wood. He's standing in this garden. He's got like 11 sort of sleepy teenager disciples behind him who are laying around the trees still snoozing at this point, really, abandoning him in his moment of need. He comes forward to face these 250 people who are angry and have torches. And uh, they said, who are you looking for? He said, or they said, uh, he said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And in the Greek, it's ego iami. So he's saying, I am he. So he's referencing uh, Moses again in Exodus 3.14. And what happens to the whole batch of them? They drew back and every knee will bow. And there's this moment where Jesus, even this, in his humility, in his kindness, in his quietness, in his meekness, there is this moment where Jesus takes his spot as the God of the angel armies and he goes, I am he. And everyone goes, because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I think what Jesus is, is saying and declaring in this moment is that I am not going to die because you're going to kill me. I am dying because I am laying down my life in accordance to my heavenly Father who wants to save and rescue you and all humanity for all time. I am not going to die because you've come to get me. I have ultimate authority and power over all of the angel armies and the host of heaven. And you, pathetic 250 people, may bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
and they fell to their feet. Can you imagine the embarrassment? I've got a few friends who are in the Marines. I've got a few friends who are Navy SEALs. I've got a few friends who are snipers. They're a, they're a tough breed. These were Roman soldiers trained in a Spartan way. What does it take to get 250 of them to? The presence of the Almighty. And Jesus sweeps and goes, I am he. Verse 7. Again, he asked them. So now where are they sitting at this point? On their knees. They're on the ground. They fell to the ground. Who is it you want? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. I love Jesus' compassion there. Love it. Verse 9, this happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these that you gave me. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Okay, let's talk about Peter here for just a second before we continue in verse 12. All right, Peter, uh, under his cloak, has a, a sword. Now, he has a sword because just like Judas, he has made the assumption that this Jesus has come and he is going to overthrow Rome, he is going to overthrow Herod, he is going to wreck the dynasty that is currently ruling Palestine and Judea, and he is going to set up shop as this sort of warlord. And guess what Peter's ready for? Oh, I'm ready for it. Now, I want you to think a second because I think what's happening in this moment is Peter's back behind some trees. Jesus has gone out to meet the 250 that are out there. Torches are going. Uh, weapons are in their hands. There's, people are loud and angry. All of a sudden, Peter wakes up, and Peter runs out, probably stepping in front of Peter. You have the high priest's uh, servant and perhaps the high priest there with Judas at the front of the thing. Peter pulls his cloak back, draws a sword, and what's he aiming at? You know, I've never been into battle with a sword, but I can't imagine being in battle with a sword and going, I'm going to get his ear. <laughs> I mean, I think it's in, in some ways it's fortunate that the last three years Peter has spent training his heart um, and training his mind in Christ Jesus, and he hasn't been training to use the sword. So this is silly, I'm going to tell you anyway. We were, um, Josh and Shannon, who are sitting right here, they about a... I don't know, a year ago or so, they took Abby and I over to um, Axes and Allies, where you throw axes. And we all assumed, because I'm a landscaper, right? Uh, like by trade. Like I, you know, I use an axe. I sling a chainsaw. Like I, you know, we just assumed that Michael was going to, I was going to be good. And we all, and guess what I assumed? I'm going to be good, right? So we, we walked into this place, and, you know, Josh pays or whatever, and we all go up there, and Abby steps up, and she throws, that's my wife, she throws her first axe, and guess what? Sticks. Boom. Shannon, I think you were maybe the second throw. So first throw, Shannon misses. Second throw, Shannon sticks it. Josh was probably the third or fourth throw, so they're already making fun of us because, you know, they got the, I mean, Abby hit that thing first time. And then I threw. Bink. Floor. 
Bank, floor, bank, floor. I think I threw 110 times, no exaggeration. I was frustrated and embarrassed, and I literally thought, oh, I'm, I'm a landscaper. I can chop a tree down faster than anyone in the room. Maybe not Bobby. He's, he's a tree man. But here's the point. Peter is standing in the garden at this moment. He's back behind these trees. His Jesus is out front. And Peter, in these next passages that we're going to read, gets such a bad rap. But this is Peter, who 250 armed men with lanterns and weapons are out front. And he comes out and he draws his sword, assuming that he's accomplishing the will and way of God, who's going to set up Jesus to overthrow Rome and Herod. He pulls out his sword and he aims for Malchus's head and he, he drops that sword. Malchus shifts just a hair, and he chops his ear off. So Peter, in this, because Peter's about to deny Jesus, and we're going to read it, gets this absolutely horrible rap because he denies Jesus. But I want you to understand Peter in a way, uh, before you understand him as the one who denied Jesus, um, I want you to understand him as the one who literally threw his life in front of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're one person and you're going to take on a group of 250, guess what's going to happen to you? Certain death. And Peter runs into this thing, and he just went for it with everything he has. And in this moment, go back to what we said about Judas, he is confronted with this decision. He has made some assumptions that Jesus is going to set up the kingdom of God in such a way that he's going to get promoted, he's going to get something in Jerusalem, he's going to become a ruler, and he goes in to fight with his will and his way, just like Judas, and he is confronted by Jesus and his response. Are you ready? Let's read. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is the cup of wrath for your sin and mine. This is the cup that Jesus is drinking. He, he, he is becoming the slaughtered lamb to cover your sin, your failure, and mine. Not just the sin you've already done, the sin you're going to do today, and the sin you're going to do next year. To cover it all. He is becoming this. That is the cup that God's given him to drink. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him to Annas, who was... I've lost my place. <laughs> yeah, where, where, where's the... Uh, cut it, Jesus commanded, put it... Uh, thank you. Then a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. Um, okay, so we don't even have in here, I was thinking, where's the, where's the ear? It's in, the, it's, in another, uh, it's in another of the Gospels. But he actually takes uh, the ear, Jesus picks it up, and he puts it back on Malchus's um, head, and he actually prays for it, and guess what happens? It's healed. So I want you to see something. When Jesus says, love your enemies, he is literally taking the ear off the ground, and he's doing several things here. He's first saying to all the Pharisees and all of Rome, I'm the God who has come to heal. I'm the God who's come to restore. I'm the God who's come to redeem. I'm the God who has come to set things right. I'm not the God that's come to kill or judge or hate. I'm the God that has come to bring peace. And then he's also rebuking Peter because he's going, Peter, the kingdom of God is not going to be one with swords or guns. 
The kingdom of God is going to be one in human hearts, and the kingdom of God is not about overthrowing Rome or overthrowing Herod. It's not even about America today. The kingdom of God transcends all human rule, all human politics, all human agenda. The kingdom of God is this eternal, unseen thing. And when Jesus picked up this guy's ear and prayed for it and healed him and put that thing back on there, he simultaneously uh, preaching to the 250. This is who I am. This is what I've come to do. He's also rebuking Peter, going, Peter, no, this is not how this is going to be accomplished. And Peter is suddenly faced with the same choice Judas was. Are you, Peter, going to continue to fight for your will and your way? Or are you, Peter, going to bow the knee, surrender your life, and go, I submit to the kingdom of God and your will and way? Now, Judas, what did he choose? His way. Peter, ultimately, chose God's way. At this moment, in this point in time, I think what was going on inside of Peter and Judas was very similar. Okay. Let me just say this. Um, Jesus always requires you to surrender your personal kingdom to embrace his. Always. All right, let's keep reading. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. Um, Annas is complex. Um, so let me just read this and I'll tell you about him. Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas is his father-in-law. Um, I, I want you, I'll, I'll tell you about this in a minute, but I want you to begin to think of Annas as probably the most powerful and most wealthy Jewish leader in Jerusalem at this point. So uh, uh, Annas had six sons. Five of them were high priests. And then his son-in-law was also a high priest. Who do you think is making the decision on who gets to be the high priest? Annas. Okay, very powerful man. All right. So um, Caiaphas, the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. That was kind of a prophetic declaration we read a few chapters ago. Okay, verse 15. Um, let's, talk, let's just pause and talk about Annas because I think this is so important. And you're, you're going to have to like get this a little bit, because Annas is faced with the same decision that Judas is faced with, the same decision that Peter's faced with. So in this day and age, people were declared under the Mosaic Law and Covenant, that's the Old Testament, that they had to bring a sacrifice to the temple, okay? And then uh, the, the priest at the temple would inspect the sacrifice and say, it's good enough or it's not good enough. Now, if it's not good enough, what do they have to do? They got to find or buy or harvest or something a better one. So, um, they, uh, what would happen and what Annas began to do is um, Annas had a Levitical priest at the entrance and people were coming in. Let's say they brought two doves and let's say the two doves were actually great. The, the person or the family would come in, the priest would inspect the doves and they'd say, no good. And then they would come into the actual temple um, and outside the temple, a pair of doves might cost four pim. That's a type of money at the day, four pim. Inside the temple, they cost 75. 
So I want you to get what's happening here. Annas is this, he is the wealthiest, most powerful person in Jerusalem. And when people are coming in, he has devised this uh, elaborate plan that they're going to bring their sacrifice and he's going to reject at least some of their sacrifices. And where they could walk outside the temple in Jerusalem and buy a pair of doves for four pim, he's going to make them come in and they have to buy a sacrifice that's already been approved by the priest and they've got to spend 75 pim instead. Now, what is he doing? robbing the people blind. He is wealthy and he is hated. The the Jewish people hate this guy. And what's also fascinating is under Mosaic law, the high priest was made high priest for life. So not just for a moment in time, but actually for life. Rome actually um, deposed him or moved him out because he was difficult and stubborn, although he retained the power of of who was going to be the next high priest. And so he uh, anoints or calls his kids to be the high priest in his stead or after him. So uh, he is um, greedy, he is ugly, he is, he is controlling the sale of animals um, used for sacrifices at the temple. So when Jesus, I want you to think back if you're a Bible person, if you're not, you're going to have to trust me or look it up. But when Jesus went into the temple, he braided a whip and he flipped over the tables, he drove out the money changers, he was in an area that, where Gentiles were allowed, and he said, you, my house should be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of Thieves or robbers. Now, who is he talking to? Annas. So he is not simply rebuking the religious elite Pharisees. He's actually rebuking Annas. And in his rebuke of Annas, see this God who is so gracious, kind, and loving. In his rebuke of Annas, he is actually offering Annas the pathway to life. Come to life and repent. And Annas, instead of turning his heart towards this kind and loving Yahweh God and towards Jesus, hardens his heart all the more, and he is actually behind um, Jesus being killed. Okay, so where are we? Verse 15. Um, Simon Peter uh, and another disciple were following Jesus. This is also complex. All this is kind of complex. Because the disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Now, where did the other, uh, we have two, 11, where did the other nine disciples go? They ran. They hid. Okay, so you've got two disciples. You have Peter and some other guy. My theory is this is John the Beloved. We're in the book of? John. Okay, I think this is John the Beloved. So, because this disciple was known to the high priest, I've worked this every possible way. This is it in a two-sentence nutshell. John's dad was Zebedee, and Zebedee had a fishing fleet, I think fleet, uh, probably Zebedee and son's fishing outfit, because we see in the other um, gospels that he had servants. Um, and so I think uh, his dad owned a fishing business. And in those days, you caught a bunch of fish and you came to shore and you set them in the Palestine sun. And how long did they last? I mean, fish get stinky bad, right? And fast. So what do you have to do to preserve the fish? You salt it. So I think Zebedee uh, was actually in both the fishing and the salting business, which is where our name came from, by the way, salt box. But um, so I'm convinced that John was actually used to taking salted fish, delivering it to the high priest's house. And so that's why he was known to the high priest. So let's keep going. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, verse 16. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and brought Peter in. So Peter comes in. You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? 
You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. Now, Jesus has just said, we didn't read it this morning, but a chapter or two ago, he just said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. Quick nutshell, uh, roosters, (laughs) Uh, under rabbinic tradition, you can tell I read farm animal books to my kids, can't you? Uh, under rabbinic tradition, roosters are not allowed in Jerusalem. So was this an actual rooster? Mm, maybe. Uh, but in, in Rome, there was a 3 a.m. trumpet blast called a cock crow. Um, so whether this was an actual rooster or whether this was a trumpet blast, I don't think it matters all that much. But what Jesus said is before that early morning thing happens, you're going to deny me three times. So... Now Peter is in the high priest's courtyard, and she says, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And he replied, I'm not. So he denies. Now, we, we like just beat up on Peter endlessly on this point. Where were the other guys? Abandoned him. Who followed Jesus? Peter. When the, when the regiment of Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus, who came to Jesus' aid? Peter was willing to die. This is actually like Peter the Courageous, Peter the Great. And Peter the Courageous and Peter the Great has this moment of like abject failure where he denies Jesus. Now what's powerful is if you read the book of Luke, and we're not going to go there, but after the third denial, there is this moment where Jesus is being beaten, and he looks up, and Peter, after he denies Jesus the third time, also looks up, and their eyes meet for this split second. And I can imagine this because there have been some times in my life where after my depth of sin and failure, my eyes have met Jesus. And I can only imagine that in those eyes is both hurt, conviction, probably even wrath over sin. And then the moment that flash happens in those eyes, what happens next is, I love you, I forgive you, I welcome you, come home. You are my son. Come sit at my table. Come wear the robe. Let me put your ring on your finger. It is this loving, gracious Jesus who is in the middle of getting beaten. So let's read and find it. <clears throat> he replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now this is likely in the household of Annas. Verse 19, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world. We're going to come back to Peter in just a minute. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple uh, where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Now, what is Annas doing? What time of day is it? I mean, the middle of the night, the deep night. Who's up at 2 or 3 in the morning? So if Annas wanted to deal with Jesus honorably and publicly, when would he have done this? The middle of the day. But Annas is actually doing it in secret, so he comes and gets him in this last watch of the night when everyone is sleeping, no one is awake. And so Jesus, what he's actually saying to to him is, I have said nothing in secret. And there's um, there's this sort of calling Annas out onto the carpet. There's an exposing Annas, and then there's an accusation even in it because he's flipping it on Annas, and he's saying, you, however, are doing everything in secret. You follow me? Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. 
That's the words of Jesus. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him on the face. Like The only way you can understand that slap is to understand the insult that Jesus just gave to Annas. What you are doing to me is in secret. This trial is illegal. It's not based on two or three witnesses. You are, you are hiding in secret, and therefore somebody came up and slapped him. Jesus says, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, which is his son-in-law, the high priest. All right, verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And again, Jesus, I'm not. Or excuse me, not Jesus. Peter denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with them in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow, or perhaps the translation should read, the Roman cock crow blast happened at 3 a.m. Now, let's see if we can put all this together. You have Judas, my will, my way, my kingdom, kingdom of God. What's Judas choose? Don't make the mistake of thinking he wasn't a decent, honorable, wonderful man at one point. Annas, your kingdom, your will, your way, my kingdom, excuse me, the way of Jesus, um, your kingdom, your will, your way, or my way. My way. Peter probably with the same set of assumptions that Judas has, is confronted, cuts off the guy's ear, Jesus puts it back on and heals him. He's confronted with the same thing. The kingdom of God or my kingdom? What's he choose? He chooses Jesus. So you have Annas that chooses his will and way. You have Judas that chooses his will and way. You have Peter that chooses the will and way of the kingdom of God. And then you have Jesus. And let's just look at Jesus here for a second. Verse 11, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So Jesus in his humanity, this is Jesus as the man now, faced with the same decision that Judas was faced with, the same decision that Peter was faced with, the same decision that Annas was faced with. Jesus is faced with the same thing, and Jesus says, your will and your way. And I would propose to you that every single one of us is faced with that decision the day we give our life to Jesus but I would propose to you that every single one of us is given that same decision daily. Is it going to be your will or is it going to be his will? Are you going to choose to trust him when things look bad, feel bad, seem bad, are bad? Are we going to contend for the goodness of God when things are happening that we don't like, don't understand, don't, don't like? Are we going to maintain our faith in him. If you're reading our one-year Bible, you read Job this morning. And it kept saying multiple times, in all these things that happened to Job, he never dishonored God. Whose, whose kingdom did he choose? Kingdom of God. 
I want you also to think here that the love of Jesus is so great that he sees through the failure, the shame, and the guilt of Peter to find the person he created Peter to be. Now flip that. He sees through the failure, through the sin, through your shame to find the person he created you to be. His eyes in the middle of your greatest sin and greatest failure are going to look up, and if you're willing, your eyes can meet his. And you can find forgiveness and grace and restoration and begin that journey. Jesus saw past Peter that cracked and failed and denied him in the moment. He saw the loyalty and the obedience of Peter who saw beyond his idea of what the kingdom should look like and he chose to embrace the kingdom of God and it wasn't but a couple months later where Peter uh, erupts preaching on the streets of Jerusalem and 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus. I want you to think just a second. Could Judas have turned in those moments and repented? Absolutely. Absolutely. Could he have been powerful like Peter in the early church? Yes. Like hear that church. It's never too late until the end. Was Annas able to to turn, to change, and to repent? Was that a choice that Jesus offered? Yes. This is the God who loves so well. The difference between Peter and Annas and Peter and Judas is that Peter surrendered to God's will and God's way. Annas and Judas both fought to establish their own kingdoms. And I'd actually propose to you in doing so, they probably ultimately found their way into eternal darkness. Wow, it's heavy. Let's do two things as we close. you're a Christian here in the room, I think the call is to more actively engage in a day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with Christ where you are actively forsaking your will, your way, your thing to embrace his kingdom. That's the call. If you're here today or if you're online and you've never given your heart to this Jesus, Romans 10, 9 and 10 actually says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Matthew 10, 32 actually says, whoever acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before people, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to stand with me as we close in this song.
This is about Annas. This is about Judas. This is about Peter. This is about Jesus. This is about eternal destiny. This is about who you were created to be both on planet Earth and in eternity. If there's someone in the room that wants to give your heart to the Lord Jesus, as we close in this song, I'm going to be down here. I'd love to pray with you. For us as believers in the room, if you call yourself a Jesus person, as we close, I would love for you to open your heart up and go, I am going to actively choose and engage forsaking my will and way and engaging with the very kingdom of God in my life. I'm going to lift my vision higher and I'm going to engage with King Jesus saying, will I not drink the cup he's given me to drink? Prayer team, if you'd come up as we close in this song, if you need special prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Adam, will you lead us? And then we'll close. See?
Church, say with me, King Jesus lives in me. As you go today, may the joy of the Lord be your strength. May the laughter of those who've been redeemed and forsaken their kingdom and embraced his be the thing that goes with you. May you sense his love. May you know his presence. May you find his tender glance even in your sin and failure. May you know his intimate embrace. We love you. He is good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.